Today we get to finish our summer series on the Lord's Prayer with the final sentence of of this prayer, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is known as the doxology of the prayer, which is different from the doxology we sing every Sunday after the offering. Doxology simply means words of praise in Greek. But... Uh, so, so this doxology serves as a final statement of praise that ends our Lord's Prayer. But if you were to look in your pew Bibles, you wouldn't find this line in Matthew or Luke's version of the prayer. In Matthew's Gospel, there were some later manuscripts that did include this doxology, but most scholars today believe that it wasn't part of the original Gospel, which is why you don't see it in our pew Bibles today. During the Reformation, some of the Reformers uh, sought to add the doxology to the prayer, which is why most Protestant traditions, including us, uh, say this doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. It seems as though sometime in the late 2nd century, the church added this doxology for a liturgical purpose, giving praise to the Almighty God. That's what most people end it with, but, you know, I think there's a little more to it than that. As I've said throughout this series, the Lord's Prayer is not just a guide for how we are to pray. It is, but it's so much more than that. It's a guide about how to live into God's kingdom, how to await it, how to place your allegiance to God's kingdom above all others. This doxology, while not in the original gospel, was seen as crucial for the church because it closed the prayer with praise and allegiance to the Almighty God and to God's eternal kingdom. This doxology wraps up the key themes of the Lord's Prayer into this little sentence of praise, ending the prayer with a bang. It may not have been in Jesus' original prayer, but the church found it absolutely essential for living out the Christian life, the kingdom life, here and now. To reflect on the importance of both praise and devotion to God and God's kingdom, we turn to the book of Revelation as the Apostle John describes the heavenly worship in his vision. I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the fourth chapter of Revelation, beginning with the first verse. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human, 
and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever watched a musical for the first time and felt both simultaneously excited and overwhelmed? That's how I felt the first time I saw Les Miserables. The opening scenes, like many musicals, tries to start with a bang, getting as many of the key characters on stage as possible to start developing their story and their respective characters, all with a big, powerful musical movement. There's a lot to keep up with, remembering names and stories while also trying to take in the beautifully uh, powerful scenery and music. It's easy to get lost in this to get caught up in the moment, and to miss a character or detail that is significant to where the story is heading. That's exactly how I feel when I read John's vision of the heavenly worship beginning in the fourth chapter of his revelation. So far in the first three chapters of his revelation, John is on planet Earth. More specifically, he's on the Greek island of Patmos where he's been exiled by the Roman Empire. Now, I've been to Patmos before. Let me tell you, I would gladly be exiled there. It really is a beautiful place. So I don't know why they picked that as an exile place. Anyways, he's on Patmos, and the risen Christ comes to him in a vision. He tells John to write letters to seven prominent churches at the time in Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey today. John, Jesus tells John what to write in these letters, and they contain words of comfort and challenge alike. But more than anything, these are hopeful words, encouraging them to remain faithful to God and more prophetically to resist the oppressive empire of Rome. Then we come to chapter 4, our text today, and John describes his vision of being taken in spirit up into the heavens saying a door stood open for him, and Jesus invites him in. And John describes the cast of characters he sees in the heavenly throne room, a scene that would most surely make a writer of musicals jealous. There are so many significant details here that they are very easy to overlook. If I were to go through all of them, we'd be here uh, until dinner time. But for the, so for the sake of time, let me explain a few of them. First, he describes the throne at the center. More important, though, is the one who is seated on the throne. Around the throne are 24 more thrones with elders seated on them, wearing the regalia of royalty, consisting of God's divine counsel. Back then, a ruler's power was magnified by their surrounding court. So a ruler was 
seen as powerful by how many people they had around them uh, in their court, uh, more or less. The number of elders uh, as 24 is operative here. Many believe it represents the 12 tribes of Israel along with the 12 apostles. But what it undoubtedly represents is wholeness. Twelve was seen as a number of wholeness, of completeness in Hebrew culture. And John describes the power of the divine throne room, the power of God's surrounding court, by doubling the number they understood to represent wholeness. It's showcasing God's power, authority, and all of them are seated. All of these, these 24 elders' thrones are seated towards God. Next, we meet the four living creatures, a lion, an ox, a human, and an eagle. These creatures are really a shout-out to the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah, who also allude to these creatures in their work. We're not totally sure what they represent, but we know their purpose, to worship the living God. First, the creatures bow down before the throne, crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Picture this like the call to worship we do here uh, it, it, to, to begin our worship service every day when the liturgist gets up and says a line and you all repeat. These creatures shout out, Holy, holy, holy. And at this moment, the elders fall to the ground, placing their thrones, their they're uh, symbols of power and status at the foot of the throne, and they sing together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In an age when subjects were called to bow before Caesar, these creatures and the elders in turn are bowing only before God and singing out in praise. Uh, scholar and, and president of Union Seminary where I attended, Brian Blunt, claims here that what this means is that no matter the circumstances, whether one is lifted to the highest heavens or crushed beneath the foot of Rome, one's primary duty is to praise God. The one true Lord will soon intervene in human affairs and set history right. Friends, this is what it means to end our prayer with the doxology. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. First, our lives are rooted in praise of the living God who was and is and is to come. As we finish our series on the Lord's Prayer, the final doxology in this passage from Revelation remind us that to be a Christian and to say our Lord's Prayer means, as N.T. Wright, the scholar, claims, it means that we are boldly signing on for the kingdom of God. This doxology empowers uh, us to take our praise and our trust in the kingdom of God out, to take our praise and trust in the living God out into the world around us. It unites us as the church to live into God's kingdom together, and boldly bear witness for all God's kingdom of peace and love stands against. Most notably in, in, uh, in our minds is the hatred and violence we witnessed just down the road from us in Charlottesville this weekend. Friends, in the world seems at its darkest as it did for many of us this weekend. 
This is where John's vision of worship and the doxology of the Lord's Prayer is needed most. To unite us and remind us of the love, peace, and welcome that defines God's kingdom that is both already here and is still to come. To remind us that hatred and violence cannot overcome God's love and light. This kingdom of love and light has begun in Christ's birth, death, and resurrection, but one day will come to completion when Christ returns, when, as John tells us, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death and pain and suffering and violence will be no more, for all will be one in Christ, gathered in his kingdom, all facing the throne of the Lamb in joyful praise and worship. Friends, we know how our story, the Christian story, will end. Christ has defeated the powers of evil and will. Yet it is still our job to bear witness, to live into this reality here and now. This doxology, like the entire Lord's Prayer, can become rote and lose its meaning after we say it week in and week out. But friends, it is anything but. These words truly help us live into God's kingdom, uniting and empowering us to bear witness to the gospel. You know, it's as if every time we join in this doxology, every time we begin this sentence, for thine is the kingdom, every evil, every power that opposes God's reign of love and peace is put on notice, that one day these forces will be overpowered by Christ's redeeming love. Friends, this is the hope we as a church express every season of Advent. As we await the incarnation at Christmas, but at the same time, we also await his return when God's kingdom will be fully present on earth as it is in heaven. As we close out our Lord's Prayer series, I'd like to finish with uh, the opening words that I said to begin our Christmas Eve service here at WPC. And these are from the Iona community in Scotland. I believe they truly express this hope. May these words give us hope and empower us to live into God's kingdom of love and peace here and now. Please hear this reading. Light looked down and saw darkness. Then light said, I will go there. Peace looked down and saw war. So peace said, I will go there. Love looked down and saw hate, so love said, I will go there. So he, the Lord of light, the Prince of peace, the King of love, came down and crept in beside us. Friends, may we go and live into that hope. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.